All right. Awesome. You guys ready to go for it? Sweet. All right. Cool. Let's stand up really fast together. I just want to start with prayer, and I feel like the Lord really wants to meet us with his tangible presence this morning. I feel like he just wants to break in, and even differently than he did in first service, but I just feel like he wants us to experience his presence even as we engage the word together, and I just feel like the Holy Spirit wants to move in power even as we're centered around the word. And sometimes we think of those as two separate experiences or two different dimensions of encountering God. But I really believe that those two can happen simultaneously, that you can have your Bible open and you can be moving through the text and that the spirit of God can come upon you and that his power can meet you in the word. And that those are some of the deepest encounters that you can ever have. And I'm believing that we could have one of those this morning together. Do you guys... You dare to believe for that with me? Okay, so I just want you to put out your hands if you wanna receive that. If you wanna be bored, don't, that's fine. So, but I mean, if you, you're like, I don't want the presence or the power, I just wanna sit here. Great, don't put your hands out. But if you're like, I want God to touch me as I open up his holy word, then that's how I want you to put your hands out. Lord, I'm asking right now, God, you see these ones, God, they're putting out their hands. It's not something magical. It's just a sign of desperation. Their hands out in front of them, or they're saying, I'm hungry for the word. I'm thirsty for the spirit. I want God to touch me this morning. I came here for an encounter and I don't want to walk out until I get one. Lord, I'm asking that right now you would stir up zeal in the hearts all across this room, God. That different ones would feel it on the inside of them. That, that, that thing that gnaws on the inside that says, I want to meet God today. I want to meet with God today. I want more than just the songs and the, and the forms and the styles and the this and the that. I want, I want to touch the divine today. I want to have an encounter with something bigger, something greater. I want God to meet me. Lord, I'm asking that you would come right now and every single one that's asking you to. Lord, you said that you're a father, that if we ask for bread, you won't give us a stone. And Lord, if we put out our hands at the start of service and we say, let your presence and your power come and meet us as we engage your word, Lord, you're gonna do it because that's who you are. You're a father. You're a really good gift giver. You love to surprise us. And Lord, I'm asking that you would surprise certain ones this morning that the word would come alive to them this morning, that it would be a double-edged sword, that it would be a fire shut up in their bones, stronger than a hammer. God, I'm asking God that the word would be that this morning. Come and meet us as we open the Bible. We ask this in your name, amen. All right, you guys can take a seat and we're gonna go for it. All right. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. All right, here we go. So first, I want to say that I'm, I'm honored to share this morning, super honored to share. So thankful that Nicole and Aaron, you know, were willing to give me this opportunity. And um, I'm, I'm mostly excited to share because I have felt so engaged with the series that we've been over these past couple weeks, over these past couple months. Uh, we've been talking about the church, and we've been wrestling with some of the big questions about what does it mean to be the church? What is this? This thing that we do, this thing that we come to, this thing that we're inside of, this thing that we are, what is it? What does it mean, right? And I love it as we were exploring this concept of, of being the church being family, right? Us being adopted into a family, that we're no longer orphans, right? Us being purchased into a family, that we're no longer slaves. And this idea that we've been brought in that we are sons and daughters of God, but to one another, we're brothers and sisters. That when we come in, regardless of our background, regardless, right, of any other distinction that might separate us, we are brothers and sisters. We are one family. That's a beautiful reality. And I love it as we've been kind of exploring that deeper and deeper week by week. And I've been getting a lot of revelation from it. But at the same time, I've been home asking a lot of questions. I've been asking these questions is what does it mean to be the church, what does it really mean to be the church? And I've been researching into that, and, and that's what we're going to explore today together. Um, and so to do that, we're going to have to start off by kind of going back into history for a little bit. Um, and, and I don't know how you feel about history. I love history. I loved history in high school. 
I loved history in college. I have one of my minors in history. I really, really, really like it. I know for some people, history is like you just instantly fall asleep. The moment I said the word, you just went comatose. Like you're just like, no, I, I can't even think about history without falling asleep. So, so if that's you, that's okay. Just take like a 10 minute nap and then I'll, we'll wake you up when we talk Bible again. But we're just gonna do 10 to 15 minutes. We're gonna talk history really fast so that we can get some context. And then we're gonna jump into the Bible. But here's the thing. It's really hard to understand this book if you don't know anything about history. It's really hard. There's some things that happen in this book that are super bizarre if you don't understand the historical context. So if you just, if I just give this to you and I say, okay, read it, you're gonna come upon story after story after story that you're just like, what in the world are they talking about, right? Why are they doing that? Okay? And I could get into all kinds of weird stuff that's in here, but then it'd be cringy, so we're not gonna do it, right? But there's just all these moments in here where you're like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. Unless you take the time to figure out some history. And so I wanna maybe today, if you don't fall asleep, I'm gonna try to pump a little passion for history into you and, and get you excited. You guys okay with that? You guys up for that? And then we're gonna go straight into the text together. Okay, so we're gonna go way, way, way back before the birth of Jesus into what is called the Greek Empire. Give me a little wave if you know about the Greek Empire. Like, I've heard that. I watched Hercules, so like I know something about that. Okay, yeah, so the Greek Empire, okay? So there's this thing called the Greek Empire. What is it, okay? There is a nation called Greece. That's in Europe, still there to this day. You can go over and see it, okay? There's this nation called Greece that's over in Europe, and this nation formed a state, they formed a government, and that government started getting bigger and bigger. It got more and more powerful. Their army got large. They had some awesome technology, and they decided that they wanted to expand. And they decided that they didn't want to just be one nation. They didn't want to just be one state. They didn't want to stay inside of Greece. They said, nope, we want to go further. We want to spread out. It was probably their aspiration to take over the entire world. They're like, we're going to go all the way to the end of this thing, and it's all going to be ours. It's all going to be Greece. That is an empire, okay? When you go beyond just your nation state and you begin to bring in other nations into that conglomerate. And so the most famous person who spread the Greek empire, there's actually a number of them, but the one that you might be familiar with is this guy named Alexander the Great. Anyone ever heard of Alexander the Great? Okay, good, a good like 15%. Great, awesome. We got like a low F there. So, so like Alexander the Great was this king who ruled in Greece and he decided, I wanna take my empire further than any other empire has ever gone. Because there were other ones, Babylonian Empire, Persian Empire. Later, there would be this thing called the Roman Empire, which is really important when you get into the Bible. But he was over Greece, and he said, I want my empire to be the biggest and the baddest. And the way that empires usually spread, especially if you go to those old ones, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, all of these you read about in the Bible, the way that these guys spread is they would usually kind of go to their neighboring country, right, that next door neighbor state, and they would say something along the lines of, hey, give us everything you have or we're going to kill you, right? And usually those people would be like, no, you can't have everything that we have. They're like, great, now we're going to kill you. So then they would go in and they would raise up an army and the other one would raise up an army and they would fight and whoever was the biggest and baddest, they would win, they were the victor, and then they would expand. And if they could keep winning those battles, then the empire would keep expanding and it would get bigger and bigger. So but as long as you could defeat people, that's as big as you could get. But this guy named Alexander the Great, he said, you know what? I'm gonna try to do it a little bit differently. What if we don't go knock on their door and say, let's fight? What if we go on, knock on their door and try diplomacy? What if we knock on their door and say, hey, we've got this really great thing called the Greek empire. Oh, don't, we're, we're wealthy, We've got trade, we've got technology, we've got scholars. Your kids wanna get an education? Oh, we got that. You want your food supply lines to be secure? Oh, we can do that. You want to have all this stuff from all, you like Egypt, you like stuff from Egypt? Oh, we got, you like Gucci, we got Gucci, you know? You wanna be a part of this? You can be in. And, uh, and a lot of people liked that. They thought, hmm, let's not fight, let's join them. Let's be a part of this thing called the Greek empire. So it begins to expand. Now, to be fair, when someone said no, 
then Alexander would say, okay, now we're going to kill you, and we're going to take it, and then we're going to move on. So don't think he was the nicest guy in the entire world. He really wasn't, but he was a really great diplomat, and then he was also a really great military strategist. And so they went further than anyone had ever gone before. And here's what's interesting. When they would go take over a place, they wouldn't completely destroy it or dominate it like other empires would do. They would say, you can keep your leaders. You can keep your leaders. Um, you can keep your language. You can keep your culture. You can even keep your religion. You don't have to adopt our gods. You can keep your gods. We're going to tell you about our gods too. We're pretty influential. You're probably going to like ours. But uh, you can keep yours. And uh, yeah, you guys can keep doing pretty much all that you do. You just need to become a part of the empire. You need to become citizens. And you need to do a couple things our way. But you can do most of the things your way. And uh, we good. And if everyone kind of high-fived about it, then they're like, okay, great. See you later. We're going to go take over the next place. And they began to expand and expand and expand. So it was this idea that you became a part of the empire through conversion, not just conquest. I want you to remember that. And if you were converted, then you became a citizen of the bigger kingdom. You became a citizen of that larger empire. You guys with me? You guys okay? Give me a head nod if you're with me. Okay. Some of you are like, oh gosh, why, when is this going to stop? History. Okay, but we're getting there. So you would get converted into it. And when the emperor, the king, with his army would leave, whether they were going to move forward and they were going to take over more territory, or whether they were going to go back home, they were going to go back to their families, they were going to go back to their houses, they would eventually leave. And when they left, it would raise some questions for the local people. Like, what do we do now? What does it mean to be Greek? What does it mean to be a part of the Greek empire? Who's in charge, right? How do we do government? How do we make decisions? How do we solve problems? How do we move forward? What if someone comes and attacks us? What do we do, right? What does this mean was kind of the question that they would wrestle when the king and his army would go back. And so he would set what Alexander began to do, and it was a part of their society, is they would set up a local government, and this local government was called the ecclesia. Okay, some of you might know this word. I'm guessing that most of you probably don't, but we'll get around to it here in a second. He would set up this thing called ecclesia. And here's the part. If you don't have your Bibles out yet, or if you don't have something to take notes on, this would be the moment to get your Bibles out and to get something to take notes on. We're going to break up into small groups, hopefully at the end, if we have enough time. We're going to discuss some of the stuff that we're talking about. So notes, taking notes starting now will really help you at that moment to not look silly, right? It's like you finished class and they're like, what did you learn in class? You're like, uh, I don't know. You know what I mean? I don't want you to have that moment. So you have something to take notes on. Take so there's this thing called the ecclesia, okay? And here's what the ecclesia was. The ecclesia means the gathering or the assembly. The gathering or the assembly. Okay, and what it was is they would call all of the citizens of that state to, to come together and they would meet. And when they would meet, they would do a couple of different things. And I'm going to describe those here to you in a second. And what was cool is that it wasn't based on socioeconomic class. It wasn't based on race or ethnicity. It was, it was kind of this new model where it was everybody from the top to the bottom, from the front to the back, whoever you were, wherever you came from. If you were a citizen, then you got to come and you got to be a part of the conversation. You got to have a voice. You got to weigh in on the decisions that were being made. You got to gather with others. You got to be a part of it. And they say that it would happen, you know, in some places it would happen once to, one to two times per month. In some places it would happen three to four times per month. So just to average it out, it happens about once a week. Once a week, they would get together in these gatherings or assemblies, and they would meet together, and they would discuss what was going on, and they would figure out solutions to problems, and it's the ecclesia. And here's four specific things that the ecclesia would do together, okay? Again, I would write these down. These are going to be important later. Okay, so here's what they did. The first one is they had authority to pass new laws and to abolish old laws. This is the first thing that they would come to do, right? They would come together, they would make decisions, they would pass laws, they would do less legislation, right? And then that would be binding. 
on the people who lived in that area. Or if they felt like a law shouldn't be there, they could get rid of it. They could abolish that law. That's the first thing they could do. Here's the second thing. They had the authority to raise up governmental leaders. They had the ability to raise up representatives. And they had the ability to send out ambassadors. Again, remember some of this language. This is important once you start reading the New Testament. The ability to send out ambassadors that would represent their part of the kingdom, their part of the empire. Okay? The third thing that they could do is they were responsible to deal with anything that was happening locally. So if there was a crime, they had to deal with it. If there was a lawsuit, they had to deal with it. If there was someone that was in trouble, they had to deal with it. If there was a crisis, they had to respond. If there was a problem, they had to find a solution, right? They were the governing body. They had to figure out what to do. So they were responsible for their local area. Here's the final thing. They, and this is probably my favorite, we'll get into this later, but they had the authority to raise up an army and to declare war, and then they were responsible to develop military strategy together. So if someone was attacking them and they were on the defensive, they had the authority to respond, right? But also if they wanted to take the kingdom further, if they wanted to spread the empire larger, then they could do that. They were empowered to do that. So these are the four main things that they would engage in together. Okay, you guys with me? We good? Okay, so this is the ecclesia. Get this, get this model deep in your mind because we're about to bring it into the Bible. So here's the final part of history that I want you to know. There was a time, and again, this is before Jesus was ever born, where there were some Jewish rabbis. Right? There were, they were, you know, religious leaders who were living in Israel, and they were trying to translate the Old Testament, the first like three-fourths of this book, okay? They were trying to translate the Old Testament from Hebrew, the language they spoke, into Greek, the language that everyone else spoke because they were part of the Greek empire, right? So they undergo this big project to translate the Old Testament, to translate the scriptures, and they start coming to these passages where the people of Israel, the children of Israel, that nation, they start coming to passages where they come together, they gather, they assemble, and wild things happen. Like that time that the entire nation of Israel gathered together, assembled together at the base of Mount Sinai to seek the Lord. And Moses goes up the mountain and the Lord comes down, right? He comes down in fire and he comes down with a wind it says and he comes down with a loud sound and a trumpet hmm i wonder if i've ever heard that language before in any other story okay we'll get there we'll get there right but he comes down on the mountain when they're assembled together right there's this other time when everybody comes together in jerusalem and there's this guy named solomon who built a really big really fancy temple Right? And the whole nation comes together and they gather, they assemble themselves for the inauguration of the temple. They're going to launch this new worship site. Right? It's, it's, the, it's the building opening. They're cutting the red, you know, the red tape. And everyone comes together. And when they come together and they begin to worship and to pray, and Solomon gets up and, and says some things for the dedication, and then the glory of the Lord comes down. And the, the glory is so heavy, it's so thick, it's so tangible that everyone that's there is forced down to the ground. They can't stand beneath it. And they begin to have this corporate encounter with God. And so these, these translators are coming to these different passages. It's, it's all over the Psalms. I'll praise you in the assembly. I'll worship you in the assembly. I'll dance in the assembly. And they try to ask themselves the questions. How do we take this Hebrew word this very Jewish idea, this thing that we've been doing over and over again for hundreds of years where we gather together, we meet together, we, all these powerful things are happening and God shows up. What word do we use for that? And the word that they chose is ecclesia. This thing that existed within the Greek empire, this thing that had been established and spread by people like Alexander the Great, this local government, the coming together of citizens of the same kingdom, they said, 
that's it. That's the word for it. That's what was happening back with our people at the mountain and at the temple, but on a spiritual level. So they take this word, and when they translate it, they use ecclesia, ecclesia, ecclesia. Okay. Now we're going to get into the Bible. I want you guys to open your Bibles to Matthew. This is going to help us make sense of a couple of different key passages that we find in the Scripture. So open to Matthew. It's not going to be on the screen. So if you have your Bible, get it out and start flipping. And if you have your phone, you can do some tapping as well. Both of those count. Um, Matthew 16. Matthew 16. We're going to start in verse 13. Alrighty, to give you guys a little bit of context, there's this guy named Jesus. You've probably heard about him. There's this guy named Jesus. He shows up in Israel. He starts preaching. He starts teaching, casting out demons, healing the sick, performing signs and wonders and miracles. And as he does this, he becomes wildly popular with the people. He becomes famous. And news about him spreads all over the region. And people begin leaving their homes, leaving their cities and towns and villages, and they begin traveling to come and see this guy. He's traveling all around in Israel. Nobody really knows when he's going to show up or where he's going to be next. He doesn't have a website, right? He's traveling with a group of people around, and he's just like this mystery. Everyone's like, who is this guy? But I've heard he's amazing, and everyone's talking about it over their campfires and around the dinner table. Jesus, 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 who is this guy? So people are coming to try to find him and to try to figure out who he is, okay? And the crowds start getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and the news about him starts reaching, like, the highest political powers, like the most famous people in the land. They start hearing about this guy named Jesus. Um, And and at times there's over, you know, there's over 10,000 people who are gathered to listen to this to this man, to this teacher. And after a little bit of that, Jesus decides to take his followers, his disciples, and he pulls away from the crowds and he goes up to this place called Caesarea Philippi. Okay? And here's where the story starts. It says, Matthew 16, 13. It says, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the son of man is, okay? This was the question everybody was talking about. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Is he a prophet? Is he a rabbi? Is he from God? Is he from the devil? That's what some people were saying. He's a sorcerer. You know how he casts out demons? By the power of demons. He's a witch. I don't know if you can be a male witch. I don't really know how that works. But they were accusing him, right? He's a bad guy. No, he's a good guy. No, he's a bad guy. All right, let's go see him, right? So everyone's trying to figure out this guy. He was wildly controversial. And they go, they're trying to figure out. So he asked them, who do people say that I am? Listen to what his disciples say. And they said, some say that you're John the Baptist. That's his cousin who was murdered. Others say Elijah. That's an Israelite prophet who had been taken up into heaven, and they thought that he had come back down. Others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So they think that, you know, maybe you're a prophet. He turns to them, and he said to them, well, who do you say that I am? So he gets real personal with them. Who do you say that I am? We've been hanging out together. We've been traveling together. You've seen everything that I've done. Who do you think that I am? And Simon Peter replied, and this is classic. Because Simon Peter is usually the one that replies. He's the guy that always goes first. He's the guy who always has to say something, usually the wrong thing, most of the time the wrong thing. Every now and then he stands up and says something right, but just like nine times out of ten, he just totally misses it, right? And so when Peter steps forward, he's going to say something. um, And I like Peter because I I relate to that. My wife, I feel like I'm the guy who a lot of times is like, I'll go first, I'll say something. And afterwards I'm like, why did you have open your mouth like if you could just be quiet more often your life would be a lot easier that my whole childhood was basically being a peter and i spent a lot of time in the principal's office for it and so i relate to this guy i like him because he's always getting in trouble but he but he's just bold as well so 
Come on, Peter. So Peter replies, and he says, and this is amazing. He says, you are the Christ. Pause. Okay. That sentence probably doesn't slam into you the way that it should if you don't understand the history of that word or the meaning of that word. Okay? So the Christ is a Greek word that comes from a Hebrew word. It's kind of this interplay here. You're probably noticing it. And the Hebrew word is Messiah. So he's saying, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. That probably still isn't very exciting if you don't understand what either one of those terms mean, right? But here's where that comes from. The Messiah was the throne name for the king of Israel. So let me, let me give you an example. It's like in Egypt, the throne name of the king of Egypt is Pharaoh. The throne name of the king of Rome is Caesar, right? The throne name of the king of Greece is the emperor, right? They all have a name. For, what's the throne name for the person who rules? Our, the president, right? We all have a title for that person who's over our nation. And in, in Israel, there was a name for that person. And listen, they hadn't had that person on the throne for hundreds and hundreds of years because their nation had been destroyed. They had gone into exile. This is all in the Old Testament. And they had been subjugated under the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire. It's exhausting. It's a long list. But basically, they had been beat down for years and years and years, centuries, generations. They had always been under someone, and they hadn't had a king or a queen or princes or princesses. They hadn't had a royal family that was actually established as the government for all of that time. And they had been waiting because in the Old Testament, there's all these prophecies where the prophet said, there is a man that is coming and he is going to be the king. And he's going to reestablish the kingdom, the kingdom that was destroyed, the king that was thrown down off the throne. There's going to be a king that gets back on the throne. But here's the deal. He's not just going to be the king of Israel. He's going to be the king of the entire world. Right? Because that's, we quote this every year at Christmas, right? That the government will be upon his shoulders and the expansion of his kingdom will know no end. This is a prophecy from Isaiah about the Messiah, about the Christ. And it's not just a thing that we sing in Christmas carols. It's no, there's a king coming and his government is going to go across the entire world and everyone is going to come into his kingdom. His empire is actually going to be the first global empire where everyone comes under this man. This is who's coming. This is who's coming. And so when Peter stands up here, he says, that's you. That's you, Jesus. You are the king. You are the emperor. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's who you are. Do you feel it a little bit more there? Right? So this is this crazy climactic moment where he says, this is who you are, Jesus. And I love what Jesus says back to him. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. He says, Peter, there is no way that you were smart enough to figure that out on your own. He's like, I've seen your test scores. I know your IQ. You, you did not. You didn't. Okay, so don't try to get cocky because you didn't figure that out on your own. And actually, this is an amazing passage because guess what? Nobody figures that out on their own. Nobody figures that out on their own. The New Testament is clear that we are not able to accurately perceive the identity of Jesus without the help of the Father and the Holy Spirit. If it weren't for the Father intervening in our lives to show us the Son, if it weren't for the Holy Spirit breaking into our meetings with light and with a revelation, we would never see Him. Right? You shouldn't be surprised that your unbelieving family members and friends and coworkers don't see Jesus. It's the hardest thing to do. It's the hardest thing to actually see him and to see who he really is and to be blown away by him. And unless the Father and the Holy Spirit help us, we can't do it. That's why Paul prays in Ephesians, right, that our eyes would be open to see Jesus. He prays for a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we can know him. 
We need help to know Jesus. Do you know that? You need help to know Jesus. And so if recently you've been feeling like, I've been struggling to know Jesus more. Well, guess what? We all struggle to know Jesus more. We need help to know him. God has to help us to know God or he'll always be veiled from us. And so he says, Simon, Bard, Jonah, blessed are you. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And here's what he says, 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. So he changes his name. This is a common motif in the Old Testament where people would get their names changed. But do you know who always did the changing of names? God. Jesus says, I have the authority to change your name. I have the authority and the power to shift your entire perception of your identity. You are no longer Simon Barjona. Your name is Peter, which means rock or stone. That's who you are from now on. You're, found, you're the foundation. You're steady. This man named Peter who was always tumultuous and always failing and always making mistakes and never getting it right and not consistent. He says, no, 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 that's not who you are, Simon. You're Peter. You're the rock. You're the stone. I wonder what Jesus is speaking over different ones of you today. What, what is he saying over you? What's the name that he's given you that's different than what you've been your whole life? Have you heard it? Has it shifted your identity? Has it changed your life? Because it did for Peter. We'll see that here in a few moments. You are Peter, and on this rock, do you see the play on words? You are a rock, you are a stone, and on this rock, on this foundation, I will build. And then Jesus takes the word that we've been talking about and he uses it for the first time. He says, I will build my ecclesia. Who builds ecclesias? Right? Kings, emperors, leaders, rulers, Alexander the Great. Those are the only people who can say, I will build an ecclesia. He says, I am here to build my empire. I am here to build my kingdom. I am here to raise up my ecclesia in every city, every town, every village across my empire, across my kingdom. I'm gonna raise up these assemblies, these gatherings. And you're gonna help me do it, Peter. Do you see that? That's pretty amazing, huh? Not you're gonna build my church, right? You're gonna build my church, Peter. You know, go get your hammer. We're gonna erect a church. Make sure to put some bells in it. Nice stained glass window. And I'm not hating on bells. I really like them. I'm not hating on stained glass windows. I really like those. I've been to Europe. I've sat in front of them. I cried. And I stare at Jesus on a stained glass window. So I'm not hating on any of that. But I am saying, that's not what this passage is about. All right? Hey, Peter, I'm gonna have you build a 60-minute service. No, 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 no. That's not what Jesus is saying to Peter. There is so much more going on here. And I want us to understand it. And we need to understand it if we're gonna understand what it means to be the church. Okay? So let's move on. Here's what he says next. He says, I, oh, he says, I will build my ecclesia. And I love this. And he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this is interesting because archaeologists have found a temple in Caesarea Philippi, and the temple was known as the gates of hell. And this temple, there's, I've been to this, I've been to Israel, and I've been to this exact site. It was this temple that was seated, and underneath the temple was this river that would rush underground. And they didn't, know where it, they didn't know where it went because the river never reappeared. And what they believed mythologically, especially when the Greeks were there, was that that spot was actually one of the entrances into Hades. That that was a, a physical entrance into hell. And there was all of this mythology and superstition around this spot, right? And Jesus takes his disciples this is like if we could go to like the big conference for Satan worshipers and they're all like burning crosses and like, it's this like dark, evil, wicked, wild place. And if, we, if Jesus took his disciples, it's like, come on guys, we're going to Satan fest. Everyone comes there and he puts them right outside of that and he points at it. He says, your name is Peter. And 
on this rock, I will build my ecclesia in the gates of of hell will not be able to prevail against it. He takes them to literally one of the most demonic spots in the entire nation and says, oh, that? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about that. Here's the thing. A lot of times we read this and we quote this, and when we feel like we're getting attacked by the enemy, we'd say, oh, the Lord's going to build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Here's the thing. Gates do not attack people. Right? Gates are not on the offensive. What are gates? Gates are when you take your army against an enemy, you've already beaten them in battle on the field, and in defeat, they scurry back into their city and behind their walls, and they lock their gates, and they say, oh gosh, I hope they don't come get us. And then what do you do? You bring your army up to the gates. And what does it mean that the gates of hell will not prevail against us? It means that no stronghold of the enemy will be able to keep the church out. Right? Any governmental leader who wants to try to lock down any nation and keep the gospel out, they will not be able to do it. Why? Because Jesus prophesied here, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right? When communism came into China, kicked all of the missionaries out, shut the whole nation down, and said, we will quench the fires of the gospel. The greatest revival in human history broke out. What about in Cuba? What about in South America with the drug cartels? What about in Africa with corruption and poverty, where they thought, no, 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 we'll keep Jesus out. We'll keep the gospel out. We'll stop the missionaries. We'll stop the expansion of the church. In every single situation, the church has exploded. That's what this means. It means the gates of hell will not prevail against us. It means we are on the offensive. It means we're taking the fight to the enemy. It means we're taking new territory and that we will not be stopped. That's what this means. This gives you a different kind of courage when you go into work on Monday morning. And I, this is what I do. I, I don't walk in saying, oh, I hope I don't get beat up this week. Man, I just hope that secular society doesn't take me down this week. I walk into Chick-fil-A like, all right, let's go, right? The gates of hell will not prevail against me. I'm gonna see Jesus break out in my business. I'm gonna see Jesus break out to my coworkers, my family, some of them who are dead set against Jesus Christ. No! The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We can break into any place where the enemy's trying to keep us out. This is what he says. He says, hey, Peter, I'm going to help you build that. I'm sure Peter got a little bit excited. All right? Listen to what he says here. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now to understand this passage, you need to understand something about government. Remember when I told you that they didn't have a king or a queen? They didn't have a royal family? Well, how did they govern their nation? Okay. Well, they had two primary political parties, not Democrats and Republicans, right? They had two primary political parties. They were called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You ever heard of them? They show up over and over again in the Gospels. They didn't have any separation between church and state, synagogue and state. There was no separation of religion and government. And so what they had was these two religious political parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they would come together in this thing called the Sanhedrin, which was like the high court of the land. That's where Jesus stood before they crucified him. He went before the Supreme Court of Israel before he was murdered, right? So there's these two political parties. And what they would do is they would come together in the Sanhedrin to make decisions about the law, just like the Ecclesia, what we talked about earlier. And whenever they would pass the law, there's a verb that came with that, and it was called to bind. And whenever they would abolish the law, there was a verb that came with that, and it was called to loose. Does this make sense? They would come together as a governing power to bind and to loose, to pass legislation and to abolish legislation. They would make authoritative decisions together that had to be enforced. And here's what Jesus says. He takes this out of the realm of earthly government and earthly politics. And he says, my ecclesia, when you gather together, you are also going to make authoritative decisions. You are also going to pass legislation. But here's the deal. It won't just impact the earth. It will also impact the heavens. 
When you come together, and this is what it says over in Matthew 18, we're gonna read it in a moment, but it says, when you come together to pray and you ask your father for anything and you agree upon it, you vote on it and it passes. He says, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Do you understand that, that we have the power to move angels and demons we have the power to move heaven and hell when we come in here on sunday morning and the band starts strumming and we start to worship and we start to pray hey that's just not time to drink your coffee before the sermon there is something wild happening we get lifted up from earth to heaven to stand in the highest court to stand before the highest king, to stand before the judge of all the universe. And when we worship, we worship there. And when we pray, our prayers affect that reality. And when you affect that reality, things shift down here. Daniel understood this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood this. If you go back, they were in exile in Babylon in one of the most secular times in human history. You think our universities are bad. You should have gone to university in Babylon. Okay, these guys were one in one of the wildest times, right? You didn't just get made fun of by your atheist professor when you were a Christian, you got thrown into a den with lions. If you didn't bow down and worship their giant golden demonic statue, then you get thrown into a furnace, okay? A little bit more difficult than Harvard. But these guys understood that were two or three gather together to get down on their knees and worship and pray that they have access to a higher throne and that things can be shifted. We see this in Daniel 9 and 10 when he goes on a fast, gives himself to 21 days of worship and prayer. And as he does, the heavens blow open, an angel is released. It says war breaks out in the heavens between the prince that was sent, the angelic prince that was sent from heaven and the prince of Persia. And immediately after this battle is fought, then things begin to shift in the government around him. Do you believe that you have that kind of influence when we come together? Right, that we, that we could get down on our knees right here and that we could shift governmental realities, right? He says, I'm gonna build my ecclesia. Once you flip over to Matthew 18, he only uses the word three times across two passages. Here's the other one. Matthew 18, 15 says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is legal language, court language, lawsuit language. See, when there's, when there's been something that happens in the community that would merit a lawsuit, bring it before the ecclesia. Here's what he says will happen. He says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, the ecclesia. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now this takes us back into the Old Testament where they would gather and they would assemble, maybe at the mountain, maybe in Jerusalem, maybe at the temple, maybe around an altar. But when they did, the immediate presence of God would come into their midst. It says that when Israel would make camp in the wilderness, the assembly, the gathering, that Moses would go outside of it and pitch a tent and it says that a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night would come down and would be in their midst. Do you believe that that can happen when we get together at the church? That God's immediate presence can come and can touch us and that we can meet with him. This is what Jesus is talking about. He also gives us an, a really encouraging definition of how big a church needs to be. What is the smallest that a church can be and still be considered a church? Two, right? Two to three, where two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst. Now this is interesting because this, this really kicks back against our private, individualistic, just me and Jesus. We're just doing our thing. I've got Apple Music. 
I'm going to stream worship music all day long. Do you want to talk to another believer? No, I don't want to talk to other believers. I might get hurt. Right? Do you want to go to church? No, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to be a part of the, the infrastructure. Stick it to the man, right? There's this thing deep inside of this generation, millennials, Gen Y, Gen Z, that says, why do we need this? I can just do it on my own, right? I can just do it on my own. What this is saying, and this is interesting, Jesus is saying, no, I will be with you when there's two or three, but he's also saying this, I won't be with you in that same way when there's not two and three. There's a special Way that Jesus meets us when we come together. There is a special way that his presence breaks in when we come together. And I'm not saying that Jesus isn't with you when you're alone in your secret place. And I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit isn't living on the inside of you. And I'm not saying that his presence and power won't meet you in private. But what I am saying is that that cannot be the full measure of our spirituality. Jesus didn't allow it. He said, I want you to be inside of ecclesia, and ecclesia means two, three, or more. It's why in Hebrews it says, we cannot forsake the gathering of ourselves together as some have. We cannot stop gathering because there's power in the assembly. That's why the Psalms are full of David saying, I will praise you in the assembly. I'll shout in the assembly. I'll dance in the assembly. I'll kneel in the assembly. Because there's something about when we come together and we do it together. And there's a unique dimension of the presence and power of God that comes when we get together. We cannot forsake the, the gathering of ourselves together. Amen. Let's flip over to Acts 2. We're going to wrap this thing up. This is where I'm going to need your guys' participation here in a second. So in this story, the king conquers. Death, hell, and the grave. Jesus dies, he's buried, he resurrects. He comes up, I'm the king, right? Matthew 28, I've got all authority in heaven and earth that's been given to me. I am the king. And then he does what kings would do back in the day. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> Just like Alexander the Great. Thanks for your city, gotta go, right? going back home for the winter. And Jesus did the same thing. He's like, good job, guys. It's good being raised from the dead. Let's hang out for 50, 40 days. All right, gotta go. You know what I mean? You get a month and a half and then I'm out. And then Jesus ascends and he leaves them behind in Jerusalem. And he says, I want you to wait into Jerusalem and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And when the Holy Spirit comes, you're gonna be baptized in power and you're gonna be able to carry on the story you're gonna be able to carry on the mission. What I started, you're going to take forward. Do you guys see that connection with the ecclesia? The king and his army would come in and they would take over his own, but then they'd say, okay, now, now you spread it. Now you spread it. You continue it. You govern it. You make the decisions. You lead. You find solutions to the problem. It's on you now. I believe in you. You can do it. High fives. Gone, right? That's what happens with Jesus. And then it comes to Acts 2. They've been gathered for 10 days, waiting on the Lord. And you guys know the story, the day of Pentecost, right? That there's fire and there's wind, right? And there's a loud sound like a trumpet. And the Lord comes down and he meets them. And who stands up in this wild moment but Peter? Because he prophesied over him and he said, your name is Peter. You will be the rock. You will be the foundation. I'm going to use you to build my church. This is the moment. Did Jesus leave behind an ecclesia? Not necessarily. The Bible never uses that word to describe his band of disciples. But then Peter stands up. On the day of Pentecost, a large crowd gathers when they hear the noise and when they hear just all the wildness that was happening that day. Okay? A large crowd gathers, and when they gather, Peter stands up, and he begins to preach his famous sermon. We are not drunk as you suppose. This is what was prophesied by Joel. He said that I'll pour out my spirit in the last days upon all flesh. This is what's happening right now. And I'm here to tell you that that Jesus that you crucified and buried did not stay dead, but he came up from the grave. And guess what? He's not mad at you. He offers you grace and mercy and forgiveness. You just killed him about 50 days ago. But guess what? He's willing to forgive you and he's inviting you to be a part of his kingdom. 
his empire and you can convert and join and then you can be a citizen of this thing that's about to spread out all over the world. Do you want in? Do you want in? Because I'm here to tell you today that this Jesus who you crucified is both Lord and Christ. That's what he says in his sermon. And 3,000 people immediately fall to their knees and they cry out, what must we do to be saved? It says and 3,000 were converted. 3,000 were added to their number on that day. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if right now as I was preaching, 3,000 people, and then all of them are, came rushing in here. 3,000, that's what happened on that day. It was a logistical nightmare. What do you do with 3,000 people, right? They didn't have a building. They didn't have any systems, right? They didn't have a budget. You got 3,000 people on your hands. But guess what? Peter wasn't concerned because he had a prophecy. Jesus said, you are anointed by the Holy Spirit to build my church. That in that moment, when thousands convert, you'll know what to do. And guess what? Peter did know what to do. He immediately stood up and began to lead. He began to organize along with the other disciples and they formed something that for the rest of the New Testament, they call it the church, the ecclesia. But what was it? Let's go back to that very first question we asked. What is the church? What does it mean to be the church? Go ahead and turn your Bibles with me to Acts 2, 42. We're gonna do this fast and then we're gonna land it. I wanna point out seven different things that I feel like you see in the description of the early church. These are critical for us to understand if we wanna understand what this is, okay? So here's what it says in Acts 2, 42. First, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Okay, so the very first thing that we know about the church was that they were devoted. Pause. That word is a word that is full of intensity. It's full of passion. They were devoted. They were committed. They were loyal. They were faithful. They were involved. They were engaged. The very first thing that we know about being in the church is that it's not a spectator sport. You don't come to church and sit in the stands. You don't come to church and sit on the bench. You don't come to church and not get dirty. No, you come to church and you suit up and you get out on the field and you play the game. That's what it means to be involved in the church. And we have an entire generation of people who have been sitting decade by decade by decade thinking this is what it means to be church. It's like a drive-in movie theater. It's not. That's not what we see here. They were devoted. Devoted to what? The very first thing that it says is they were devoted to the word, the apostles' teaching, which was what would later become the New Testament. And what were they teaching from? The Old Testament. It's the Bible. They were devoted to the Bible. They were devoted to the word. Let me tell you, if you ever get involved in a church that's not devoted to the Bible and that's not devoted to the word, you should run. You should run. Welcome to a cult. You're about to be a Netflix series, right? Get out of there. Get out of there. You don't want to be in that thing, okay? If it doesn't have the word at the center, the Bible at the center, get out. We've got to be passionate about this. This is our center, okay? They were devoted to the word. It says this, and the fellowship to the breaking of bread. Okay, I want to pause there. This concept of what is the fellowship? What is the breaking of bread, okay? Well, I think that what they're describing here is a practice that became common at this time and it's continued all the way till now. It's the practice of communion, all right? And communion at that time was not this highly ritualized, highly formalized religious event, right? Communion at that time was Jesus took two of the most common things that you would find at any Jewish table and he said, when you eat this, remember me, and when you drink this, remember me, Okay? He took wine, which is what they drank at pretty much every meal. And he said, every time you take a sip on this together, don't forget me. And he took bread, which they would eat at every meal. And he would say, every time you break this apart, remember that my body was broken. Every time you drink wine, remember that my blood was shed. Remember me. Don't forget about me. That's communion. I don't know what the common thing at your table is, right? Whether it's like communion and like, you know, uh, sorry, whether it's like kombucha and gluten-free wafers, 
Some of you, some of you are like, it's beer and chicken wings. I don't know what part of the spectrum you're on. You're like right in the middle. You're like, for us, just burgers and french fries. You know, it's like whatever part of the spectrum you're on. But he took the two most common things at the table, the thing that would be there for every single meal. And he says, when you have this, remember me. That's not a once a week event or a once a month event or a once a quarter event. Do you guys see that? He instituted communion. It's wild. So the word communion, and then it says this, they gave themselves to the prayers, right? And Jewish society was structured a little bit like Muslim society that they had times during the day when they would pause and they would worship and pray. And they were usually worshiping, worshiping and praying from the scriptures, from the Old Testament. So they devoted themselves to the word, to communion, for worship and prayer. Let's keep going, right? And it says, and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So what's happening here, okay? The church is involved in giving and serving. Do you see that? They're giving generously. They're serving. They're meeting one another's needs. And everyone is participating. So they're engaged in giving and serving. Let's keep going. And it says, and day by day, not week by week, and day by day, attending the temple together. Pause. If you first read that, and you only know a little bit about the temple, you might think, okay, that's just them saying that they were worshiping and praying. But actually, when they're talking about the temple, it's a little bit more than that. When they're talking about the temple, when you read what happens at the temple and all of the other passages in Acts, that's where they would go to preach the gospel to unbelievers. They would gather crowds in the courts of the temple and they would preach the gospel. So they were doing evangelism. They were doing missions. They were reaching the lost. They were connecting with unbelievers. So we've got evangelism and missions. Okay, we've got a couple more, two more. It says this. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So here's this idea. They were going into one another's homes. They were involved in one another's lives. They were sitting at one another's tables. Yes, they were taking communion together, but that was happening during a meal. It wasn't this five minute, okay, we're gonna take communion, we're gonna get out of here. They were at a meal together where they were really engaging eye to eye, face to face, heart to heart. We call this fellowship. They had fellowship and community. And here's the final thing. If you read this list and you think, oh man, they were devoted to the word. They were devoted to communion. They were devoted to worship and prayer. They were devoted to evangelism and missions. They were devoted to fellowship and community. They were devoted to giving and serving. Oh my gosh, that sounds like a long list of things to do, right? That seems like it can get legalistic. That seems like that's a lot of rules. Weren't they busy? Weren't they stressed? Weren't they bothered? Well, here's what it says. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. They were having a blast. They were having a blast. So here's the final thing we see in the early church. We see that they had fun and joy. They were doing all of these things and it wasn't religious, it wasn't stuffy, it wasn't boring, it wasn't constricted, it wasn't legalistic, it was fun. It was really fun. And it's unfortunate if we've been in environments where we've done these things together and we weren't having fun. If that's the way that it is, we need to, we need to reimagine it. We need to get back to what they had. What were they experiencing that we're not experiencing? That it made it so stinking fun. I wanna be a part of that. I want to be a part of church where I can do all these things. At the end of it, we can high five and say, "Woo, that was good. Okay? You see these seven things in church. So here's what I want to do right here at the end. To be honest, we don't really have time. I'm going to give you these questions. And I'm going to have you guys take them into lunch. Whoever you're hanging out with today, I want you to ask two questions. How about you guys stand up with me? And I want to say these, these are meant to be provocative questions. I, I, want, I want to challenge you with these questions. Okay, and if you want to write them down, you can. Here's what I got for you. First question is this. 
I just gave you seven realities that were present in the early church. So here's my two questions. First one is this. Which of these can you fully experience if you only attend church online? I want you to wrestle with that question. It's a big question that's being asked by the church right now. Can this be online? Can it only be online? Can it exclusively be online? What role does an online presence have within the church? Do you guys see that, that struggle? So I wanna ask you this question. Which of these can you fully experience if you, were, if you only attend church online? And I'm not trying to say anything about people who are home because of the virus. I know that we're in a really weird time right now. But statistically what they've said right now, 25 to 33% of believers have not returned to church after the pandemic. And researchers are questioning whether they'll ever come back. Can you imagine that? When was the last time in church history where 25 to 33% of the church population disappeared in a moment? People are asking this question, can I just do it at home? Can I just do it by myself? Can it just be me and Jesus? Can it just be me and YouTube and Jesus? And we have to answer those questions. Those are hard questions. And I'm not gonna give you the answer today. I'm gonna put it before you. Here's the second one I wanna give you. And again, these are provocative questions, but here's this. Which of these can you fully experience if you only attend a Sunday morning service? Which of these can you fully experience if you only attend a Sunday morning service? And I want you to go down that list with the people that you engage with and ask a question about all seven. Can we do this? If we just go for one to two hours on Sunday morning? What about this? What about this? What about this? And again, I don't wanna give you answers. I wanna give you questions. Let's wrestle with this together because we gotta figure out together what church is. It's a confusing time. There's lots of questions being put out there right now. And we, the ecclesia, we gotta find some answers. All right, here's what I wanna close this out. I wanna pray for you guys. And, and my hope today was that in all of this, that you would walk away with a deeper love for the church. That you would walk away with a deeper passion for the church and that you would walk away fully convinced, fully convinced that we cannot forsake gathering ourselves together. It might not always look like this, this model, this structure, but we can not forsake the gathering of ourselves together. We can't do it. The scriptures forbid us from doing it. We have to keep coming together. We have to keep figuring it out. Even when we get hurt, even when we get offended, even when we don't like that person, even when they voted differently than us, whatever it is, right? Even when they have a different style, even when they worship and they're loud and we like to be quiet or whatever, they're quiet and we like to be loud. We can't give up on one another. We can't give up on this reality. We have to keep coming together. And so I wanna put inside of you today a passion for the church, a jealousy for the church, a burning for the church, because yes, we're family, and yes, we're government, and yes, we're ecclesia, but also we're his bride. And here's the thing, in Revelation, when he comes back, he doesn't come back for scattered individual believers. He comes back for the church. He comes back for his bride. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Jesus is gonna come back when the cry from his whole global church gets loud enough to beckon him down to earth. We can't give up on this because this is what's gonna be at the end when he brings us into what he calls the marriage supper of the lamb. He's gonna marry this. Not each of us individually as the bride, but us collectively as the church. He loves us. He's passionate for us. It says that he endured the cross for the prize set before him. What was the prize set before him? He already had heaven. He already had divinity. He already had the throne. He already had angels worshiping before him. What did he get after his resurrection that he didn't have before his resurrection? There's only one thing. He had a bride. He died, went down, came back up with the keys in his hands, the death, hell, and the grave for this right here. So we can't give up on it. We cannot give up on this. I want to pray for you today. 
Stretch out your hands if you want that as you walk out of here. Lord, I'm asking that that zeal for the church would sweep across this room right now. God, that the very fire of the Holy Spirit, that fire of desire that burns in your own heart for your bride, Lord, I'm asking that you would release it right now upon this congregation. Lord, I'm asking that no matter how hard it gets in the days to come, even when great trials and tribulations come against the church, Lord, I'm asking that there would be a people that would not give up, that there would be a people who would not give in, even in the hour of a fence, even in the hour of hurt, even in the hour where we might feel disappointed by the church, that we would not give up on it because you died for it. You bled for it. You purchased it with your blood. We cannot give up. Lord, give us a holy zeal for your church today, we ask God. And we do ask that the gates of hell would not prevail against your church, that your church would continue to multiply, that it would continue to spread all around the world to the farthest places until every single tribe, tongue, and people know you. And then we ask that you would split the skies and come back down for us, and that you would bring us home. Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen. 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 All right, you guys have a great day.